If you would, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. We are, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount now for some weeks. Um, I think, I was looking back, and I think the first sermon we had on the Sermon on the Mount was from um, August, the, yeah, August the 19th. And so August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, almost exactly seven months now that we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's been good. Hopefully you do too. Hopefully you have uh, benefited from everyone uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we want to, uh, to end that series on the Sermon on the Mount. This will be the last sermon we hear um, over these uh, passages. And uh, what I want to talk about tonight in, in closing that up and concluding that, obviously we've already preached through the entire thing. Um, last week was the end of chapter 7. And so we finished all the verses, so um, what I want us to, to look at tonight and think about tonight and talk about tonight is um, the whole sermon uh, from beginning to end, from chapter 5 all the way to the end of um, chapter 7. And you've heard, uh, you've heard the saying sometimes where, where maybe someone will say that, that in, in some other context you might hear someone say someone has um, focused on the tree so much that they missed the forest, right? Uh, focused on all the details so much that they don't understand the whole, um, the whole picture, the whole thing. And so that's what we want to look at tonight is kind of the, the whole picture. If we were to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, you probably know, especially now since we finished preaching through the entire thing, um, you probably could pick out some, some sections of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. You know some things about it. You know uh, the Beatitudes, obviously, at the very beginning. Some of you even probably have those memorized. Um, you know the, sermon on the, um, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, probably all of us or, or most of us have that passage memorized. Um, we could pick out other things, the, the two builders on the, on the sand, on the rock. Um, we could pick out the, uh, the golden rule or, or different passages like that that come to mind where we're familiar with those small, small parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and yet, I, I wonder if we could summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount as, as a whole. What is it about? What is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount? When, when preachers stand up and and preach sermons on, on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights or, or whenever it might be, they have a point to the sermon, right? There's, there's a main point they want to get across, and they have different ways of, of doing that. And so I wonder if you could pick out what is the, the main point or the main purpose, the main idea in the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if you could pick out the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, you know? This morning, uh, this morning when Josh preached, his sermon had three points, right? And, and each point um, worked together to, to, to build to enforce the, the main point of his sermon. I wonder if we could look at the Sermon on the Mount and pick out the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then I wonder if we, could, if we could summarize the Sermon on the Mount. What is, if someone asked you, what is the Sermon on the Mount about, what would your answer be? And so that, those are the kind of things that we want to talk about tonight. And so first of all, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? What is, uh, how does the Sermon on the Mount apply to us today? How are we to apply it to ourselves and to our church and to our world today? What is the Sermon uh, on the Mount about? And, and so if you, if you look back through church history, um, there's been lots of different ideas, lots of different ways of trying to um, understand the Sermon on the Mount, explain the Sermon on the Mount. Early in church history, um, there was a group that, that said the Sermon on the Mount, really what it is, what Jesus is doing here, is he's giving us kind of a, a, a higher way of living. And so you have the, the, the normal Christians who live kind of a normal life, and then you have the monks and the, and the, the priests and the pastors and, and different ones who are called to be leaders in the church. And the Sermon on the Mount is, 
um, is kind of a higher standard that monks are called to or that nuns are called to or that pastors are called to or, or priests or, 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 or that kind of thing. So you have this kind of two-tiered structure of Christianity where you have the normal Christians and then you have the, the higher Christians. And I think we would all say that that's probably not, not true. I'm going to tell you tonight that that's not true. Hopefully you would agree with me. Um, another uh, way of understanding the, the, the Sermon on the Mount has been um, in, in the Lutheran tradition, there's this, this idea of law and gospel. And in, in the Bible, there's, um, everything can be categorized as either part of the law or part of the gospel. And, and, and the purpose of the law is to show us ourselves and show us that we can't measure up and show us that, that the standard is so much higher than us. And then that way it pushes us to the gospel to seek, seek God to, uh, to, to save us because we can't do it ourselves. And in the Lutheran tradition, often the Sermon on the Mount is seen as part of the, the law. It's, it's to show us the, the standard that God has and, and to prove to us that we can't measure up to it. And so instead of trying to live up to it, we should go to, go to God, go to Christ um, in the gospel and seek his grace and, and mercy for us. And there's, there's some truth to that, right? It, it, it is true that the Sermon on the Mount has a high standard, and it is true that we can't reach that standard by ourselves, and it is true that we need, um, we need God to, to save us. But I think there's, there's maybe more to it than that. Um, if we keep going through, through church history, there was a movement in the early 1900s called the Social Gospel Movement. A couple of uh, more liberal Baptist pastors started this. Walter Rauschenbusch was, was one of the most famous ones. But the Social Gospel, they looked at Jesus' teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount, and they said, this is the answer to what we need in our world today. And so if we just follow the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' other ethical teachings, but especially the Sermon on the Mount, if we just follow this and try to implement this in our world today, our society around us today, then we'll develop a, a kind of a utopianism here on earth. We can, we can turn our world into this kind of perfect place, this, um, this place where everyone gets along. They focus on the brotherhood of man and, and, and those kind of things. Um, and, and, and they did that. And there's some truth to that as well within the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and yet they did that to the exclusion of the gospel. It did, you didn't have to get saved. It didn't, or, or it didn't matter whether we believed in God or not. It didn't matter um, whether, whether, whether our sins were forgiven or not. The purpose was to transform our world here today into a better world for all humans to live in. And I think we would say there's some, some, some things about that, that, that that's wrong. Later on in church history, in, in maybe the mid-1900s or so, early 1900s to mid-1900s, the dispensational movement, um, gained some popularity, maybe in the Schofield Reference Bible, if you've used one of those or have, have one of those. And, and, and it's changed some over time. Dispensationalists today don't, don't look at the Sermon on the Mount quite the same way. But early on, classic dispensationalists looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and they said, this is a description of the millennial reign of, uh, of Jesus. That Jesus came the first time, if the Jews had believed in him, that he would have set up his kingdom right then, and, and this is what it would have been like. But the Jews rejected him, and so he didn't set his kingdom up. He went to work with the Gentiles. But there's a day coming when the rapture is going to happen, and then, uh, and then after the rapture, the tribulation, and after the tribulation, Jesus is going to set up his thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth. And the Sermon on the Mount is a description, a picture of what that millennial kingdom is, is going to be like. Okay, and, and without getting into a bunch of arguments about, about all those end-time kind of things, I think there's more to the Sermon on the Mount than that. I, I, I don't think it's something that we should ignore right now. Um, th that kind of thinking says it has nothing to do with the church today. It shouldn't be applied to the church. It, it's wrong to try to apply it to the church today. This is a whole different age than what the Sermon on the Mount is, is describing. Um, but I think the Sermon on the Mount does have something to say to the church today in the way that we live um, today. And so what, what is it? The, the, the main point of the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, or the way that it, that it works today, 
I think, and what I'm going to say tonight is that it is um, a description or a standard of life in the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving his, his description of life in the kingdom, his standards for life in the kingdom. That's why I've titled this sermon, Life in the Kingdom. It's a description or standard for life in, in the kingdom, and, and yet when is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? And, and the answer, I think, is the kingdom is here now, and it's coming more fully later, right? There's this, this idea in, in, in the Bible, this idea in Christianity where the kingdom has already been established, but it's not quite fully here yet, right? There's a big fancy name for that that doesn't matter, but it's, it's here, but not quite yet here, right? It's already and not yet. Sometimes those, those words are used. It's here already, but it's not yet fully here. And, 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 and yet the kingdom is here now. And, and, and the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I think, is, is a description and the standards for how we're to live as subjects of, of the kingdom. So the kingdom has come today in the presence of the church. The church is God's kingdom on, on earth. It hasn't fully come because the kingdom isn't set up all over the whole earth yet, right? But, it, but the, the, the kingdom is here in, 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 in the presence of, of, of his church. You might think of the church and, and individual churches, local churches, as outposts of the kingdom, right? Or, or embassies of, of the kingdom, which would make us ambassadors of the kingdom. And, and the New Testament uses that kind of language. Paul talks about us being ambassadors for Christ. God's kingdom has come in the church, and we're subjects of the kingdom, we're people of the kingdom, and, and so we're living in, in these places as embassies, as outposts of, of the kingdom. This is why Jesus, in some of the parables about the kingdom he gives, he, he describes it this way. One of the most famous ones is the, the, the parable of the mustard seed. Remember that parable? Jesus says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He says it's, it's the smallest seed, but when you plant it, it becomes the largest tree in the garden. Right? And that's how the kingdom is. The kingdom starts out really small. It started out with 12 people, 12 disciples. And one of them was a fake, right? It started out with 11 true disciples. And, it, and, and yet it's gradually over time growing and growing and growing. And now there are churches all around the world. And, and one day um, judgment will come and, and all people will be believers in, in, in Christ. All those who are, who are left in the kingdom, right? The, the, there'll be a judgment where the, the wheat and the tares are separated. And, and those who are not truly part of the kingdom will be, will be removed from it. And, and so we can think of the church as these embassies, these outposts of, of the kingdom. And we can think of ourselves as ambassadors of the kingdom, right? And if you think about the way that embassies work, even our, our own nation, the United States, has, has embassies around the world in these different countries around the world. Other countries have embassies here in, in our nation. And, and, and those are focused on, um, on foreign policy, focused on nations getting along with one another and, and nations relating to one another. And, and, and what are the terms of those relationships? And how do we, how do, we do that? And if we think about the kingdom that way, we can think about the kingdom's um, foreign policy as the gospel, right? The way that the kingdom of God relates to the kingdom of, of earth, if you, if you want to call it that, the, the non-kingdom of God is through the gospel. The way, that, the way that, 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 that people leave the one and become the other is through the gospel, right? The, the, the words that we have for the world is the gospel, inviting them into the, the kingdom of God. And so if that's what it is, let's look at the, at the sermon for, for a little bit, and let's try to make some sense of it in, in, in the sense of let's try to, try to find some structure in it, right, um, and, and see if, there, if we can 
look at it and, and, and kind of categorize it into, into maybe some, some points, and, and we're going to try to do that. Um, I've got five points that I think we can kind of categorize the Sermon on the Mount in. This doesn't mean that when Jesus was preaching it in his sermon notes, he had these five points, right? But, but if you take the, the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount, um, I think you can categorize each of the things under these, under these five points. And this is not something I'm making up. I'm getting this from other people and kind of taking what some other people have, have what some different other people have, have said and kind of putting those together into, into this framework. But the first, the first point is um, the subjects of the kingdom. The subjects of the kingdom. And this, we see this in the very beginning, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 16. The subjects of the kingdom, especially starting in verse 3 when he begins to, to preach, he, he describes who it is who are the rightful subjects of this kingdom. And he goes to the, the, the Beatitudes that we're so familiar with. Who is it that are, are the rightful um, subjects of the kingdom? He says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Look at the end of the Beatitudes in um, verse 10. Uh, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kind of bookending these, these Beatitudes around who it is that are, that are part of this kingdom. And so we could go through all the Beatitudes, which we've done before, and, and, and talk about each of them. But, but, but how are the people who are rightful subjects of the kingdom supposed to be? What, how, what's supposed to characterize us? He says that we're poor in spirit. He says that we mourn. He says that we're meek. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, we're merciful. We're pure in heart. We're to be peacemakers. And we're people who are going to be persecuted for righteousness sake, just like the uh, prophets and, and others who came before us were. And then in the next passage, he talks about those who are salt and light. And so this is who we are. This is who the, the, the rightful subjects are. We're called to be these kind of people, and then we're called to be salt and light, which, which goes back to the idea of ambassadors. We're called to be ambassadors of the kingdom to the world around us as we live in these embassies, these outposts of the kingdom here in the church. So the first point is the, the subjects of the kingdom. The second thing he talks about in the, in the sermon is the morality of the kingdom. So if, if, if we know who is supposed to be in the kingdom now, now what are, the, what are these people supposed to live like, the morality of the kingdom? And we see this in, in the following passages, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through, uh, through 48. And first of all, he, he, he reminds us in, in verses 17 through through 20, that he's not really teaching us something new here, right? He's, he, this is not some new break with what's come before, but he's, he's explaining to us that, uh, that what he's about to tell us is the rightful understanding of the Old Testament, right? He, it's this continuation of the law. He says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've, come to, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he's not saying something new. This is in line with what's come before and, and then he goes into explaining to us the, the right way to interpret the law from the Old Testament. He says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of 
sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And, and we could continue through this whole, this whole passage, but what he's getting at here is that the morality of the kingdom is not something that's outward, it's something that's inward. The morality of the kingdom is about the heart, right? The morality of the kingdom is about the heart. It's not about necessarily, it is about how we live, but it's more about why we live how we live. It's more about why we live how we live. It's the heart of the matter, right? It's why are you bending over to, to, to clean up that drink that's spilled? Is it so that everyone will look at you and see that you're a great person? Or is it because you want to obey and, and serve we want to obey God and serve other people. It's, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. So we have the, the people of the kingdom, the subjects of the kingdom. We have the morality of the kingdom. It's about the, the heart, not about the, not about the outward act, action. Just because you don't murder somebody, if you have anger in your heart and you want to murder them, well, you're really no better than someone who did murder them, right? The anger is, is a problem just like the outward act is a problem. The inward lust of the heart is a problem, just like the outward act of adultery is a, is a problem. And so it's, a, it's, 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 it's these heart issues. The third point uh, we could call the, the inward life of the kingdom. The inward life of the kingdom. And this is the first part of chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, the inward life of, of the kingdom. And we might think of this as kind of the culture of the kingdom. Right, you know, different places have have different cultures. If you've been uh, if you've been somewhere outside of the U.S., then you know that there are uh, different cultures around the world. And, and if you go somewhere outside the United States, often you feel out of place. Often you don't know how to uh, how to interact. Sometimes you don't know what's the proper thing to do, or what's the polite thing to do, or what's the um, the um, the um, offensive thing to do. Right? And that even happens within the U.S. There are different parts of the United States where you can go, and there's different customs, different cultures, depending on where you go within the United States. Um, and, and, and so we can think of this as being the inward life of the kingdom or even the, the, the culture of, of the kingdom. And it, it involves giving. The first part of chapter 6, we're to be a, a giving people. He says, Beware of practicing righteousness before the people, again, not to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you do give to the needy, it's not, a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a matter of if you give to the needy, it's when you give to the needy. It's just assumed that as a member of the kingdom, you're, remember the Beatitude says that it's those who are merciful uh, will, will, will be part of the kingdom. And here it's acting out on that mercy. And so it's common practice. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's common culture. It's the custom of the kingdom to be generous and to help the needy. We're a praying people. Part of the culture of the kingdom is that we're a praying people. We're people who are relying on God. We know that we are not reliant on ourselves. We know that we're not capable of, of providing for ourselves and, and caring for ourselves. And so we're people who rely on God. And so prayer is a part of it. Fasting is a part of the culture of, of, of the kingdom. So we have the inward life of the kingdom or the culture of the kingdom. And then the fourth point, we have the, the outward life of the kingdom. 
So we have the inward life, now we have the outward life of the kingdom, where how, how, we, how we as kingdom people, how we as believers, as disciples of Jesus, how we relate to those who are not disciples of Jesus, how we relate to the world around us. And, and so if, if the inward life of the kingdom is, is the culture of the kingdom, then the outward life of the kingdom is, is the foreign policy of the kingdom, right? And I've already said kind of the, the, the foreign policy of the kingdom is, is, is the gospel, but even more specifically here, Jesus gets into it in the end of chapter 6 and beginning of chapter 7 from, uh, from 6.19 through 7.12. He talks about the outward life of the kingdom. And so he tells us not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, right, but, but lay up treasures for ourselves in, in heaven. We don't rely on the things of, of this world. We rely on the things of, of God. He tells us to... Um, in the next passage, in, in, in uh, verses 25 to 34, uh, about our anxieties. Don't be anxious about what's going to happen in this world because God, again, is in, in, in control of this world, and especially in control of his people, in control of his kingdom as he rules over it as the king. He tells us that we're not to judge others, those outside the kingdom. It's not our place to judge them. It's our place, again, as the ambassadors of the kingdom, it's our place to share the gospel with them, not to, not to judge them. He talks about our need for, for discernment in, in chapter 7, verse 6. He talks about how God answers prayers in the next passage, verses 7 through 11. And then he talks about the golden rule, how we're to treat people in, uh, in chapter 7, verse 12. And so there's an inward life, a culture of the kingdom, and there's also an outward life of the kingdom. And then finally, he ends the sermon um, in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27, with the two options and the kingdom. And that's not really a good, good name for this point, but I couldn't come up with anything better. It's the, the, the two options or the two, the two ways or the two approaches to the kingdom, right? And, and, and there's several passages here, um, but it talks about the, the two ways in, in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 7. It says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's a log in your own, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dog, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In verses, um, if you skip down to verse, verse 15, he talks about the two types of, uh, of prophets and the kingdom. You have false prophets, and then in contrast to that, you have true prophets, right? And so you have these two different um, types of prophets, and then of course in the end, verses 24 through 27, we have the, um, the passage that we're all familiar with, the uh, two builders who build their house on the rock and build their house on the sand, who build their house on the wisdom of what uh, Jesus is teaching, and those who build their houses on the sand, the foolishness of, against what Jesus is teaching. We have those who are subject to the kingdom, and we have those who are rebels against the kingdom. These two, these two options, these two aspects, these two um, ways of living related to the kingdom. So this is, this is a way to, to, to break this sermon down, a way to kind of summarize the sermon, a way to kind of um, structure it, the subjects of the kingdom, the morality of the kingdom, the inward life of the kingdom, the outward life of the kingdom, and then the two options in the kingdom but the summary, to summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's all about life in the kingdom. It's about living as subjects of the Lord. It's about living as disciples of 
Jesus, living as disciples of Jesus. We as, as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus, then we're, we're subjects of two kingdoms right now, right? We're, a, we're citizens of the United States, and we're also citizens or subjects of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so we're caught in this kind of two, two-way, um, two-way living, and we're pulled in these two different directions. There, there's some things about the two uh, kingdoms that are compatible with one another, and then there are other things about the two kingdoms that are, that are, that are not compatible with, with one another. And yet we're pulled in these two different ways, and, and, and we're called to live lives of allegiance to the king. As subjects of his kingdom, we're called to live lives of allegiance to the king. We're called to be different than those who are not in the kingdom. We're called to be different than those people that are not in the kingdom. There, there should be a difference about the church. There should be a difference about believing people. If someone who, who is not a believer were to come in and spend a week here at, at our church, and we're here on Sunday morning and here on Sunday night and here on Wednesday evening and here on, on Thursday morning and Wednesday morning for the Bible studies, and anytime time there are people here gathered for whatever reason, the, the, this person is here observing, they should, they should notice differences about us than about the world. And often, sadly, often um, in our context, that's too often that's not necessarily the case. Too often we get pulled into living the way the world does. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that there's a, there's a different type of life that those who are subjects of his kingdom ought to live. The passage we read at the beginning of the service this, morning, this evening was saying there's, there's, there's a different way of life for a disciple and it, it, it will behoove you to count the cost before you decide to be a disciple. It, should, it, it will be a wise thing to consider whether we're up to the challenge or not, whether we're committed to the challenge or not before we become a disciple. Because being a disciple is different than living in the world. There, there are differences to different cultures. I remember being in, in St. Thomas on a mission trip with our church back several years ago and we were doing vacation Bible school at a at a church um, in the mornings, and, and one night we went out to, to eat at a restaurant, and we were, ended up being out late. The church that were hosting us wanted to uh, to do something nice for us. It, I, I don't know if it was our last night there. I can't remember. I don't think it was our last night there, but but they wanted to do something to honor us, so they took us out to this nice um, restaurant on St. Thomas on the island, and it was late when we got back, and we had to be up the next morning for vacation Bible school. I forget what time it was. Maybe, I don't know if we had to be at the church at 9 o'clock or something, so we had to get up um, so we could also, we don't have one bathroom, so we all had to, had to take showers and things like that. So we had to get up pretty early. And I remember we were, we were getting ready to get up, and the pastor called and said, hey, we're all really tired. I know you're probably tired too, so we're going we're gonna to just postpone vacation Bible school, and we're going to start an hour later. That way you get an hour more sleep. And we were all happy. We went back to sleep, slept for another hour, and then got up and got dressed and got ready to, to, to go. And we were, when we arrived at the church... All these kids and all these parents were hanging out in the parking lot, waiting on us to get there, because no one had told them that we were going to postpone Bible school, right? If we did that here, that's a huge thing, right? I mean, that's, those parents and those kids wouldn't be here. They wouldn't wait an hour for the doors open. Some of y'all were upset tonight because you had to wait three or four minutes for someone to come open the door because um, it was locked tonight. Not upset, but you know what I mean, right? But, but that's their culture there. It wasn't a big deal to them because that's, that's what they do. Nobody was upset. Nobody cared. The pastor wasn't... Uh, being a bad pastor for doing that because that's their culture. In their culture, time doesn't really matter. If you say you're going to start at 9, you might start at 9.30, you might start at 10.30, right? You just you start when everybody gets there. And there's lots of cultures around the world that are like that. And, and, and so we know how, how cultures are different. Miss Anna just got back from Egypt, and there's, I'm sure there's lots of things in Egypt that are different than in the United States, right? She was riding a camel. We don't ride camels in the United States. She was riding a camel through the desert. I'm sure there's lots of differences that, that she experienced there than what we have here. 
and their and, and their differences between just as much as there are differences between the, the culture of the United States and the culture of St. Thomas, there are differences between the culture of the United States and the culture of the kingdom of Christ. And, and there, there's a sense where we should be different, right? There's a sense where we are citizens of the United States. We've grown up in the United States, and so we, we look like and act like American citizens, United States citizens. But we should also look like and act like kingdom citizens. Right? There should be a, a distinguishing mark to us. Um, we've preached before, I think Josh Reen's preached before, and I've kind of used this analogy before about that, that Christianity has a look to it. You know, they're, they're different, different sports look, different athletes look like their sport, right? If you have a, a college wrestler, they, they have a certain look to them. If you have a, a swimmer in the Olympics, they have a certain look to them. They're tall, they have long arms, long legs, they're kind of gangly, they're skinny, right? If you look at an athlete that's a, that's a swimmer, you can kind of tell or kind of guess that he's probably a swimmer. If you look at a, at a, a college student who's, who wrestles, you might be able to guess that he's a wrestler because they're usually kind of short, stocky. They got those big muscles on their necks and shoulders. And you can kind of guess that that, that, that person might be a, a wrestler. Or when they reveal that he is, then it, it makes sense to you, right? Well, there should be a, a look to Christianity as well. There should be a look to being a disciple of, of Christ. We should be different than the world around us. The way that we treat people who are, who are in the kingdom should be different. And the way that we treat people outside the kingdom should also be different than the world around us. To finish, let's, let's look over to, um, to 1 Peter just for a second. 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been studying 1 Peter in, in Sunday school. And when I was thinking about this today, this, this passage came to my mind. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start in, in verse 1 and read down through verse 6 or so. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So they're no longer, this, he's writing to believers here, they're no longer living for human passions like they used to, now they're living for the will of God. They're no longer living in the king, in, um, uh, according to the culture of the kingdom of man, they're now living according to the culture of the kingdom of, of God. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And then look at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter's saying the believers here, the people that are not believers that are living in the same area as these believers are surprised when these believers don't act the way that they do. They're surprised when these believers don't look like and act like and talk like and think like and enjoy the same things that the non-believers that they live with enjoy and talk like and think like and all those things, right? There's a, there's a sense where the people around us who are not believers should be surprised with the way that we think and the way that we talk and the way that we act and the way that we treat people and... and we, we, we should catch people off guard all the time because when, the, when, when something happens, their response and our response should, shouldn't be always exactly the same. When we hear something happening in the news, our response to that news story might be or should be a little bit different than other people's perspective because they're looking at it from a worldly perspective and we ought to be looking at it from a godly perspective. We should be looking at it from the perspective of kingdom's citizens or they're looking at it from the perspective of kingdom of earth citizens, right? If something happens in the, in the world, 
it may, it may, may have a different impact on us as, as United States citizens than it does on citizens in a different world, right? Think about World War II. We were on the side of, of the Allies and there were other nations on the side of the Axis powers. Whenever, whenever news came about about the Allies doing well, well, that was good news from our perspective, but it was bad news from the perspective of Germany and, and Japan and, and different ones, right? And so when, when, when things like this happen, we should have a different response, a different perspective, a different understanding than those around us because we're called to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're subject to the kingdom. There's a morality of the kingdom. There's an inward life of the kingdom. There's an outward life of the kingdom. And ultimately, there are only two ways in life. Either we're uh, pro-kingdom people or we're anti-kingdom people. Either we're pro-king people or we're anti-king people. One of those two. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have sent your king, Jesus, to be our savior and to be our Lord and be our master, be our king. And God, I pray that you would help us to be good subjects of him as our king, good subjects of his kingdom here on earth. God, I pray that you would help our church to be a good outpost, a good embassy of your kingdom. God, help us to think about things that happen to us and happen around us, not only as people of this world and people of this nation and people of the state and the city and this place, but also people of your kingdom, people who've been transformed and changed and, and look at things a little bit differently now. God, I pray you'd help us to, uh, to treat one another differently. And Father, help us to, to think about and treat those outside of your kingdom differently as well. Help us to be uh, gospel-carrying ambassadors of your kingdom, that others might join through us. Father, that as, as this mustard seed that, that, that was planted many, many years ago continues to expand, continues to grow as this tree branches out. God, I pray that, that you would help us to be, um, use us in, in, in that cause, that we might bring people in and we might expand the borders of your kingdom, even here uh, around us in, in, in Fairdale and in Louisville. God, we thank you for Jesus. I pray you'd help us to follow him better, help us to be better disciples of him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.